to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. You can hear us Monday through Friday from 12 to 2 p.m. on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. You can also hear us at SputnikNews.com and at Rumble.com slash Political Misfits. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here today with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have another full show for you. We say that every day, but we actually do have full shows for for everybody every day. Uh, Today is no different. We're going to talk about Ukraine, Israel, the Defense Department, criminal justice. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of other interesting and important issues. Uh, But let's start with Ukraine. There are lots of developments on Ukraine this morning with apparent progress in peace talks taking place in occupied Constantinople. No, I'm kidding. It's it's in Istanbul. I know why you did that. Yeah. I absolutely know why you did that. Boy. Okay. Sorry, I can't help but to pick fights with people. Mm -hmm. A Russian spokesman announced that the country will seriously curtail bombing in the north of Ukraine. Uh, That's around Kiev. And uh, it appears that talks are underway to allow for a ceasefire in Crimea that would last for 15 years. This is a very interesting proposal to me. So the idea is that they would put the issue of Crimea on the back burner for 15 years, promise, you know, both sides promise ceasefire and over the course of those 15 years would engage in additional talks. That sounds great. Yeah. Of course, there are lots and lots of details, some of which at this early stage appear to be extremely difficult to surmount because they're not necessarily up to the Russians or to the Ukrainians, but to outside forces. But the important thing is that the two sides are talking. Yeah. And apparently we'll continue talking. Right. I think that that. Yeah. Even like a good start is a good start. Right. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be the end. Right. To still be something to to celebrate. I I agree. Uh, You know, for the first time since this thing started, what, five weeks ago, I feel very cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. Okay, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday signed the state's so-called don't say gay bill into law. Uh, This thing is going to be nothing but trouble for a whole Mm -hmm. lot of people. The new law bans discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation from kindergarten through third grade. There are a lot of people who wouldn't object to that, I'm sure. But... It also prohibits providing older children, and when they say older children, they mean through 12th grade, with any material that's deemed developmentally or age inappropriate. But they didn't bother to define what that means. Oh, so it's just going to be endless fighting over those endless terms. Endless fighting. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we don't want anything that's developmentally or age inappropriate, right? But who's to decide what's inappropriate and at what age? What is inappropriate for a, an 18-year-old? Exactly. Is, uh, other, than, exactly. other than drinking alcohol, apparently. Right. <laughs> you can die uh, for your country in war at 18, yeah, but you can't drink alcohol. No, I mean, and also, like, developmentally inappropriate. Again, sure, don't give kids stuff that's del- developmentally inappropriate, sure. right? Don't put penthouse in a school exactly. library. That's totally yeah. fine. Uh, but this idea that it is somehow in, in, inappropriate in, you know, the years of your puberty to be figuring out and learning what, you know, what sex is, what your identity is, what relationships are, what other families look like, what other, you know, what other customs might be. The idea that just deeming all of that inappropriate is sort of, it starts from this position that um, 
the the normal way to develop is into i mean this is since this is all about sexuality it's sort of like normal development results in a heterosexual person exactly and anything that is different from that must be caused by some sort of deviant influence at some point which is just not True. I think we all just we understand it's that this just is not simply the case. not true. And all it does is hurt those kids. You know, there's a woman who's buried here in uh, in Washington by the name of Barbara Giddings. And I think probably most Americans have never heard of Barbara Giddings, but she was a very early lesbian activist. And it was Barbara Giddings who was responsible for lobbying the American Psychiatric Institute for years until 1972, when they removed homosexuality from the DSM as a, uh, as a mental illness. 1972, here we are 50 years later, and the state legislature and governor of Florida are trying to roll the clock back on this issue. There was at least, uh, I mean, anecdotally, right, there, were, there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, c- celebration, relief, uh, at seeing the, the number of students in schools who, you know, expressed opposition to this law and came out and sort of expressed support for their gay classmates or non-binary or trans classmates right. or whatever. Like I, I did see quite a class. lot of people saying this is, you know, this is really different from even maybe five, definitely 10, 15 years ago. Yep. And, you know, what's happening in the governor's office is very, very important. But I think also what's happening among children themselves is, is pretty important. So maybe maybe there's some hope there. I hope you're right. I will say I actually follow these kinds of issues and the corporate responses to them. And Disney, Disney's a kingmaker mm-hmm. in Florida, and they were um, they were slow to get involved in this. They had a, there was a staff walkout. There was a staff walkout. It. Yeah, which is appropriate. I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, agreed. Okay, what else? A couple of weeks ago, we told you that Congress um, finally passed a bill that would make lynching a federal hate crime. As, I, I got to repeat that because I remember yeah. repeating it a month ago. Lynching was not a federal crime until today. So the vote was unanimous in the Senate. Uh, in the House, only three uh, wackadoo members uh, voted against it. They'll have to live with themselves. Mm. But in any event, uh, this morning, President Biden signed the bill into law. Right. And uh, it's officially called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. It's named for the 14-year-old African-American boy whose torture and murder at the hands of racists in Mississippi in 1955 sparked the civil rights movement. So it's finally on the books. Uh, listen, there's another story that I, it's not I really this, newsworthy. I love though. this story. Now I saw this. I thought this was wonderful. I, love I had it. to I love put it, it in. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Trump claims to have hit a hole in one yesterday at his golf club in Florida. So the former president was playing with four PGA golf pros, Ernie Els, Gene Sowers, Ken Duke, and Mike Goodis. These are major names in golf, right? All champions. There's no video evidence of the hole-in-one. There's only video of Trump picking up the ball out of the cup and then high-fiving a couple of guys. But then these golfers high-five each other. So it's unclear exactly what happened. Oh. We just have to take Trump's word for it that he got this hole in one. So he released a statement yesterday that is hilarious to me, and it's vintage Trump. Here's what he said, quote, many people are asking, so I'll give it to you now. It's 100% true. 
I hit a five iron, which sailed magnificently into a rather strong wind (laughs) with approximately five feet of cut, whereupon it bounced twice and then went clank into the hole. These great four players noticed it before I did because their eyes are slightly better. But on that one hole only, their swings weren't. I won't tell you who won because I am a very modest individual. And you will then say I was bragging. And I don't like people who brag. It's sorry. Unquote. It's so funny. It's very funny. It's, it's, it's funny accidentally, but it's also funny <laughs> on purpose. And I do think there were some times that Donald Trump was saying something fun when he would say, you know, I'm a, I don't know if this stable genius comment, but there were a couple where he's like, I'm a, I'm a young, uh, virile man, whatever. He's obviously joking. And it <laughs> is funny. I mean, he was a bad, he's a bad man. He's a liar. He was a bad president. I don't want to see him come back. I, you know, like all, all of that. That was, that's funny. And I also, thought it was funny. You know, I would love to feel about my, I would love <laughs> to just issue press releases celebrating my daily accomplishments. You know what I mean? I would love to feel that way about myself and want to do that. I should, you know what? I should start doing that on my Twitter. Yeah, I, I saw a quarter. I picked up a quarter on the ground today, guys. You know, yeah. 100% true. You heard it straight from me. <laughs> I uh, helped an old lady. Yeah, just whatever. That's, uh, Crazy. I, hate it when you, I hate it when you make me miss Trump. Oh my gosh. Well, you know what? If, if we could have this kind of Trump where he just says silly, funny things and it doesn't, harm the nation. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. That's fun. Yeah. But but no. for him to say it from the White House, that's an entirely different no, issue. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> ridiculous. And he is obviously a megalomaniac. Like, no one does this except a, a, a narcissist, right? Except a megalomaniac. And also the fact that you don't know if it's true. Right. Which it really might not be. Who is, knows? Again, you know what it reminded me of? Sh- he shouldn't be president of the country. Absolutely no. not. As soon as I read this, it made me think of Nicolae Ceausescu, the former dictator of Romania, because Ceausescu claimed to have hit 18 holes in one in one round of golf. And it was in all the Romanian newspapers. And, and the article was like, he's the greatest golfer in the world. He hit 18 holes in one in one round of golf. But that's not even as good as his wife who wrote every science textbook in the in the country and who discovered plutonium and it just went on and on. And this is what it reminded me of. Yeah. Like, okay, there's no video. There's this video afterwards where everybody's congratulating him. Yeah. So we're just going to have to take his word for it. But there okay, it is. We're, la- we're laughing now, but it's a slippery slope. <laughs> Fine, John, I've learned my lesson. I, uh, I noticed this. I don't know if you saw this uh, article in Politico magazine. It's an opinion piece. Uh, about uh, what do you know the the power of American media? Did yeah. you see this? Yeah, it's so odd. I mean, it, the headline: "Our secret weapon against Putin isn't so secret." We already know a lot about how to break through the Kremlin's wall of silence. What is it? Oh, it's a uh, Voice of America. Yeah, Voice of America, Our own propaganda outlet, BBC, whatever. I mean, sure, but it's it's funny and and like yeah, I don't know. I, it seems to be sort of a lot of nothing, but they're in terms of the opinion it's trying to express, which I guess is continue to fund Voice of America, which I don't think is, you know, uh, under threat at all. Um, But one of the things that it points out, I thought was, you know, was worth raising. It notes that um, uh, it notes the the viewership that Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, these American uh, news slash propaganda outlets 
uh, it notes that their viewership has uh, seems to have gone up a lot, right? Like people people are in between February 24th and March 3rd, something like 240 million views across digital platforms. Their YouTube channel grew to exceed 2 million subscribers. Uh, VOA's Russian service reported nearly 17 million video views on social pl- media platforms, you know, and blah, blah, blah. It seems like since the war started, I think quite accurately, right? Since this war started, people are thinking, maybe I want to look for a variety of sources mm-hmm. on this. Maybe I don't only want to look at the, exactly the state media of one of the participants in this war, which I think is a totally sane response, right? Totally sane. And so these people are able to access this, uh, this media because they can go watch it on YouTube. Because they can they can listen to it through a VPN. They can listen to their different radio services, whatever. And I just thought, yeah, this this people this is all about how how people in Russia are able to listen to Russian language media provided by a number of different countries. Imagine. And part of the reason for that is because one of the major vehicles that that media is distributed through is not a private entity a private American entity that can be so influenced by, uh, or, you know, it's not a private Russian entity that can be so influenced by the Russian government. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, it's, it's very odd to be saying like, here's our secret weapon providing information and sort of not, not see the disconnect. Yeah. That, that is also right. what lots of other Incredible. organizations are trying to do with their own English language media. Yeah. And they're being hindered by it because those platforms are so beholden to one government that is involved in this fray. When I was at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, one of my oversight duties was of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which uh, manages Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Marti, TV Marti. They've cut the number of languages that they broadcast in by two thirds, right? Because everybody uses the Internet now. Nobody really listens to the radio unless it's, you know, North Korea or Kyrgyzstan or whatever. They've, they've cut all that out. The only place where they had true success where people like actively sought out, it was Radio Marti, um, was when they broadcast baseball games because the signal was nice and strong and clear. The game was broadcast in Spanish and everybody wanted to listen to it. I mean, it. everything has a purpose. Exactly. I just think it was sort of like a little bit of a, a little bit of an accidental, I'm trying to find a phrase that's not self-own because that was so silly, but it kind of is to yeah. just say, oh, look, look, look what happens. Look at, look at other media, you know, sort of able to uh, uh, proliferate and be broadcast and be received by people. That's right. That's right. Well, we've got our first guest on the line, so we're going to take a short break and come right back. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be back after this. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, taking a little bit of a closer look at Joe Biden's budget uh, and what it says either about his, uh, his real plans or his campaign plans. We're also going to talk about the price of oil uh, being raised by Saudi Arabia and how we might feel that. Joining us 
To break down all of these questions is Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. He's also Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital and a Fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Great to be with you again. Thanks so much. So uh, we talked on this show a little bit yesterday about um, Biden's new proposed wealth tax. And I thought that The Hill actually had a pretty apt take on it, saying in its headline, uh, Biden moves to campaign mode with billionaire tax plan. Uh, And, and, you know, of course, the the conclusion we came to yesterday was sounds like a great start. Wish it's sort of uh, political prospects were a little bit better. Uh, But I kind of want to start talking about the budget in that light, right? And ask you how much of it looks like campaign mode, how much of it really shows, you know, viable efforts to fulfill his administration's stated priorities, and and how much of this budget, what aspects of this budget are are people really going to feel, right? Your average American working person. Yeah, great set of questions, Michelle. I think um, in, in many ways it is campaign mode on the one hand, and sort of partly campaign promising, I'm sorry, promise fulfillment on the other hand. Uh, but there's a good deal of overlap, I think, between those two sort of desiderata, right, on the part of a, of a particular budget. In other words, it helps uh, a president in his sort of reelection campaign, and it helps the Congress members who he supports uh, in midterm elections if, on the one hand, he can show that he has at least partly fulfilled some of the promises that he made during the last cycle. But it also, of course, uh, helps them if it provides additional sort of um, you know, beneficial changes that they themselves can campaign on, even if some of those changes are more symbolic at this point than, than truly consequential uh, or significant. So take, uh, for example, the, the, the tax proposals that are part of the budget. It seems to me that these have a number of distinct functions, all of which, in effect, kind of help Biden, um, even if the help that they offer to the rest of us um, is a little bit more modest than that. So first of all, by targeting uh, billionaires uh, and by taxing even unrealized capital gains on the part of the portfolios held by these very, very wealthy people, uh, Biden sort of sends a signal to the sort of progressive wing, the sort of the Bernie Kratz, the Warren Kratz and so forth, that he's kind of looking to tax wealth too, just as the two of them have proposed and just as we've never actually done in an official way uh, as a, a taxing uh, polity. Um, and so in that sense, he's you know kind of earning a few points, what you might, you might say with the sort of progressive part of the party. By the same token though, because there's a sort of deficit reduction effect of those particular tax um, uh, uh, elements, in addition to other tax elements that he's introduced into his budget, um, he can win a few points with some of the more moderate types, the kind of mansionites, and maybe even some Republicans who either are uh, concerned about or purport to be concerned about deficits because there is significant deficit reduction that comes about as a result um, of those particular tax changes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, in some, I suppose, the tax elements of the budget, on the one hand, kind of make me want to say, meh, but on the other hand, I kind of think, well, I guess it's more than I was expecting by this point, um, you know, given all the sort of doldrums that we sort of went into after uh, Mansion sort of nixed to build back better for good uh, last December. I mean, it does seem like uh, a theme of this administration, right, is they're, they're trying to strike a balance, as you said, a strike a balance between uh, fulfilling campaign promises to people, giving people things that are actually going to benefit them, and also keeping an eye on the deficit and pleasing the the deficit hawks and the sort of wannabe, you know, pretend d- deficit hawks. And if that balance remains you know, I'm not going to turn my nose up at it. It's just sort of like as as these things are negotiated down the line, 
uh, sometimes what happens, as we saw with the infrastructure package and the social spending package, is that what what is sort of designed to aid and appeal to uh, the common people is what gets jettisoned. The other um, tension that I wanted to ask about is maybe a tension between short term and long term that probably overlaps with what we were just getting into. And I I am not like a, an Australian politics watcher, but I did happen to I happen to become aware that that uh, their current government has released a budget that they would enact if they were reelected. And uh, and some of the things that it is proposing are sort of immediate immediate measures to take the edge off inflation, right? Like some small cash payments, uh, a reduction in the fuel tax. And, you know, I think that it is good that Biden continues to make proposals to uh, enact long-term changes, right? Suggesting investments that are over time designed to make housing more affordable. Like, I think that, I think we need more long-term thinking. But I'm also wondering if if there is much in the short term to help people because, you know, it's very expensive out there. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I'm sort of, I guess in, in many ways, I'm sort of, um, how should I put it? I guess I feel a, a little bit troubled by the, the missed opportunity or the opportunity cost, um, you might say, that afflicts the current budget. As we talked about last time, uh, there are uh, immediate term measures that the president could take or, or that he could urge the Fed to take, um, basically in the form of sort of targeted interventions rather than across the board blunderbuss style rate hikes that would basically bring relief to those of us who are not at the top of the income distribution or the top of the wealth distribution where inflation is concerned. Concerns, even in the short term, while at the same time then uh, pushing uh, longer term uh, reforms of a kind that would basically uh, reshore production, um, basically make um, the American economy uh, a sort of production or productive powerhouse again, so that we had plenty of goods and services being manufactured here at home again to sort of absorb all of that um, money that they're trying to soak up now. And none of that really seems to be being done. Um, I don't know if that reflects a calculation on the part of the administration that, well, they wouldn't be able to get that done anyway, or there's just too much opposition, uh, or maybe they're just too distracted by goings on in Ukraine or something. But there is a little bit of an opportunity missed here, it seems to me, that's uh, you know quite regrettable for the reasons that we talked about last time. And they remain regrettable now. Yeah, I mean, the, the budget is being described. You know, you mentioned, um, I guess, taking, taking a slightly different look at, at what is possible given some of the administration's failures when it comes to legislative plans. And this budget is being described in the headlines as, uh, you know, uh, appealing to centrists, right? So tacking more to the center. Uh, does, is that how it strikes you? And and with that in mind, do you think that I guess what do you what do you make of its political chances? Right. It, given that maybe it represents a sort of pared down vision, uh, do, does it mean that some of this stuff that I think you, you and I and John care more about is is going to survive? I think it might. I mean, it all really does seem to hinge on cinema and mansion in a way, doesn't it? And, um, you know, we can all, if we think in terms of sort of framing effects or what have you, I mean, I, that phrase, framing effects, um, if, you, if you sort of compare what we have now or what he has proposed now to what we might have expected, um, things look a little bit better than they do if you look at them against a, a sort of a larger frame. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, the sort of the bones thrown to the, uh, the birdie crat uh, wing of the party. 
are, I'd, I'd say, better than I expected, right? I didn't expect them to talk about, you know, taxing unrealized capital gains, and I didn't expect them to talk about taxing, you know, uh, stock buybacks by firms, and I didn't expect to hear them uh, talk about raising the corporate um, uh, tax rate up to 28% from the current 21%. Those are all things be- I didn't expect them, and they're sort of more progressive leaning, even if they're not, you know, miraculous or anything like that. Um, and so I'm pleasantly surprised in that sense. I kind of feel like, well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's going to kind of mollify the progressive wing on the one hand. In the meanwhile, all the deficit reduction stuff will per, you know, presumably mollify Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and some of those others. And so it actually might get through um, on the one hand, and it might be more progressive, all things considered, than we would have expected, say, a month ago, uh, on the other hand. And, you know, in that sense, I suppose it's kind of good news, even though, as you can tell, I, I'm not sounding particularly enthusiastic. No, and, you don't. You don't yeah. sound enthusiastic at all. Yeah. So it's, it's like a consolation prize, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's it's sort of nothing like what we were kind of hoping for up until December 21st uh, last year. But it's at least more than I was expecting after December 21st happened, you know. I wanted to ask you about the possibility that this budget might be just a sop to the, the parties left. This is what frightens me, that things are divided so closely in, in both the House and the Senate, especially in the Senate, that the White House knows it has no chance of getting this budget as it stands, having been submitted uh, through Congress. But at least they can say to the party's left, look, we we put money in here for education. We put money in here for the environment and, and environmental cleanup. Uh, we put money in for, you know, various pet projects and, and a little bit that would have gone into Build Back Better knowing that it's going to be cut out later and they could say, well, at least we tried. What do you think the possibility of that is? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I, I really, am, I, I find it hard to sort of predict one way or the other uh, on that, John. I mean, I, I do think that it's quite possible that they can get it through as it is if Manchin has sort of meant what he has said, right? Manchin right. has professed to be, you know, amenable uh, to raising taxes, even on the wealthy and on corporations and the like. Um, and if that's true, uh, then he'll be in favor, uh, and they'll be able to get this thing through uh, the reconciliation process. Uh, of course, we have to keep cinema on board yeah. as well, and yeah. she's the real wild card now. Um, on the other hand, if, if he doesn't get Manchin uh, and cinema on board, then I think we're right to where you were just describing, John. I mean, basically, you could just say, well, we tried, but then you know, all of the good stuff got sort of stripped out um, in order to get uh, some buy-in from Manchin and cinema. Right. Yeah, that, that's what I'm afraid of. That, that's what I'm afraid of. But, you know, I'm also wondering if if they're proposing this budget thinking that the chances are still good that they can actually pick up a, a Senate seat or two Senate seats, if you look at the polls over the last couple of days, and that this is how they lay out their program for the last two years of the of the term. You know, I suppose that's that's just as as likely as the other scenario. You know, maybe we should be taking this budget seriously. Yeah, it might amount to a, a, a kind of a bona fide, in good faith, tactical retreat in the sense that 
there might be an actual calculation here that they could pick up seats in the midterm rather than losing them in the way that everybody was fearing a few months ago. Uh, and that if they do this budget, if they craft it well, you know, so that they keep uh, progressive enthusiasm, uh, at least up, a, up to a degree, on the one hand, while, you know, kind of reassuring some of the more uh, center type uh, or even center right type folk on the other that they might come back stronger in January of 2023 with a new Congress and then can get even more, you know, more actually exciting stuff done uh, before the midterms. I mean, I'm sorry, before the, uh, the the next electoral cycle in 2024. Right. I also wanted to ask you, Robert, about um, oil prices, right? Because it looks like Saudi Aramco is going to raise all of its official selling prices uh, again, uh, this time by oilprice.com has it by two to three dollars a barrel. Um, uh, Bloomberg is predicting uh, closer to five dollars a barrel. Oilprice.com is also predicting another price hike in May. Um, at the same time, uh, there seems to be little expectation that the OPEC meeting later this week is going to result in any uh, change in production. So it kind of makes me wondering what what is coming next? How are we going to feel this? And, uh, and what what's Saudi Arabia doing? Like, what do you see behind this move? Yeah, it looks like uh, classic price gouging to me. Um, and it might be also, among other things, a kind of an expression of displeasure uh, on the part of the Saudi government after uh, the U.S. government has begun to sort of distance itself a bit more from Saudi than it used to do, uh, I think largely thanks to the uh, the protests of many about all of the atrocities occurring in, in Yemen. I think that the, the U.S. government seems to have been hearing some of that for a change um, and uh, accordingly sort of distancing itself a bit from the Saudi regime. And maybe this is one way that the Saudi regime sort of registers its displeasure. Um, you might have noted or you probably read that there's you know, been a lot of news out lately, too, about the Saudis kind of cozying up a little bit more to China um, and um, not, you know, sort of refusing to sort of uh, condemn uh, Russia. Um, it's looking like Saudi Arabia is, is sort of increasingly, you know, kind of going its own way yeah. um, as as one as they have every, I suppose, you know, sovereign right to do, um, but it also means that you know uh, it's going to be harder for the Biden administration to justify some of the kinds of military support um, that that it's been giving right to Saudi Arabia for for decades now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think that's that's what we're seeing here that uh, the Saudis had it good under Donald Trump, and uh, they have it not so good under Joe Biden. He's made some critical statements about them and. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm just ahead. waving a finger to to just add as a little asterisk and then not not so good in in almost entirely superficial ways. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, so but face, say, is, face is very important to alone. them. Though. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. But face is very important to them and they don't like being spoken down to. And so I, I think this is right. This is this is their way of getting back at us. You know, we're in this oil crunch. Prices are higher. We asked the Saudis a week ago, week and a half ago to increase production. They give us the middle finger. And then today they say, actually, we're going to jack the price up a little bit and see how you like that. Yeah. And there were you, you guys will remember there were rumors a few weeks ago that they weren't even accepting calls uh, yes. placed to by, by the Biden administration. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a, certainly they're 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 surely miffed, and in a, in an odd sort of way, there's a strange kind of parallelism it seems to be developing between our relation with them on the one hand, 
and our relation with Israel uh, on the other hand, right? There'll be sort of superficial criticisms uh, on the one hand, um, which are not, uh, which don't go down well um, in the criticized countries. But then, um, as Michelle was suggesting, with a proverbial rubber hits the road, when it comes to the actual, um, you know, dollars uh, worth of aid, uh, we continue to pump um, all manner of, uh, of military aid into both countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you guys know, increasingly allied of late. Right. And it seems like a lose-lose situation for the, the king of the world, the United States over here. You wonder how we ended up in this situation. And on the topic of energy, you know, I mean, the globe right now is in the middle of a a major energy crunch, right? And anticipating more, right? You have countries in Europe trying to figure out how they can continue to buy gas from Russia and simultaneously trying to figure out how they can not need gas from Russia anymore, right? We have uh, political uh, discontent brewing uh, largely because of the price of of gas. You know, like it's been it's a great cudgel to hit Biden with. And it's it's difficult to talk about because on one hand, I'm I'm very aware that in the United States, we have very, very cheap gasoline, right, compared to lots of other of our peer nations and other Western nations. Right. Um, but. You know, so on one hand, I think I think gas is is too cheap, right? We probably should should be paying more for it. But, you know, I, I don't like to also see the, the consequences of these decisions sort of passed down, passed down all the way to the American consumer who is not making that much money, not getting free health care, not getting a lot of the perks that, you know, you would get in, say, Australia or, or Western European countries. And so, you know. I'm trying to figure out what what should the balance be, right? Given that you you have a, a population in the United States that's seeing inflation run really high, that's seeing its paychecks, you know, eroded by these these price increases. And I think, you know, maybe we should be considering some kind of temporary energy subsidy, right? Not because I think gas should be cheaper, but because I don't think that American families should be the one to suffer the consequences of these bad political decisions. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I guess I'm sort of asking what it, it seems like a thorny problem. And I don't know the the short and long term answer. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts would be. Yeah, I think, you know, it seems to me that probably what would be best here, and I think it's increasingly feasible to do this as well, uh, is to do something along the lines of that kind of micro-targeted uh, aid that we talked about last time. That's to say, let the prices uh, at the pump, so to speak, continue to rise if it does sort of lead us to conserve more, to burn less, uh, and to sort of speed up our transition uh, to, to green energy sources. But at the same time, uh, perhaps send a compensatory payment payments out to folk who can sort of least afford those price rises and hence are, who are sort of hardest hit, right? Working people who have to drive 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half to the construction site where they work or what have you. Um, insofar as those folk are sort of disproportionately harmed because a larger portion of their total expenditures go to foodstuffs and fuelstuffs and, and heating oil and the like, um, you can send them specific compensation to sort of um, you know lessen the burden on the one hand, while still allowing the price system uh, for petroleum products to sort of reflect the actual social cost the continued use of those particular substances uh, imposes on all of us. I also wanted to ask you, Robert, about uh, something that I know you shared, you were sharing on social media, and it seems to be a little bit of a warning, you know, We've seen a uh, 
wave of uh, different labor actions across the U.S. over the last couple of years, and uh, in particular among some of the essential workers, you know, people who branded essential workers during the pandemic, who came to see that indeed their their labor was essential and that they should be paid better for it. And you highlighted this story from the New York Times uh, warning about uh, contract negotiations between uh, workers and, uh, sorry, between uh, 22,000 union workers and their employers who work at nearly 30 uh, ports along the West Coast of the United States. And on one hand, you know, I think it is a really appropriate moment for for labor to be, even in this sort of weak, weak way we see it in the United States, to be flexing its muscle. And on the other hand, uh, you seem to be warning that not not to do it, but that, you know, actions like these uh, could be swooped up and taken and, and held up as, as scapegoats for inflation, for higher prices. And so I'm wondering, you know, what what is there? What can we do to make sure that doesn't happen other than to sort of be forewarned about it? I think the other thing that we can do is, again, to point out that all of the firms whose owners are going to be, you know, kind of crying bloody murder um, when wages go up and when salaries go up, all of these firms have been posting record profits ever since the pandemic began. Um, And, you know, not to sound too, um, you know, sort of straight up Marxian about this, not that there's anything wrong with that, but the principal, right, the principal sources of the cost of goods are um, labor costs, quote unquote, on the one hand and profit costs on the other. And all of these people who talk about, you know, wage push inflation or salary push inflation, for some reason, never seem to uh, be aware of the, even of the existence of a category of profit push inflation. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, there's absolutely no reason not to highlight that. If prices are going up and profits are going up as well, that suggests, doesn't it, <laughs> that the non-workers are the, the real source of the price rises? Uh, and so if labor says, well, hey, we would like a, you know, we ought to get a bigger cut of this too, particularly given that you're telling us that we're essential. If we're really essential, then why don't you pay us as if we were essential um, and maybe pay the uh, the shareholders who are quite inessential uh, a bit less, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's just I, I don't see why it is that profit is is viewed as a sort of social good and profits going up is viewed uniformly as a social good. But wages and salaries going up um, are not viewed as a uniform social good. Indeed, you know, the latter are much more like an actual social good because wages and, 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 and salaries uh, are the income sources out of which people actually buy things and thus keep the economy growing and keep people employed. Whereas, you know, the wealthy profit takers are typically going to just gamble uh, with those uh, additional increments of income that they have uh, by speculating on financial markets and derivatives markets, which has no productive effect, no employment um, uh, aiding effect, no national income or national wealth growth effect. Um, right. So it seems to me that the real thing to do here is just to be relentless in pointing out that the real the component of inflation that matters and that we can do something about is the profit component, uh, whereas the wage and salary component is is minuscule and has been for the last 40 or 50 years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's the only conclusion you can come to. I appreciate you pointing it out here once again. I do think you just I think you're exactly right. You just have to keep saying, look over here, look over here, look what look what they're trying to make you ignore. That was Robert Hockett of uh, Cornell University. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much again, guys. Thank you, Robert. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. 
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Yesterday, we mentioned that Secretary of State Tony Blinken had participated in a security summit in the Negev Desert, along with the foreign ministers of Israel, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Egypt. The major topic of conversation was Iran and its nuclear program, or lack thereof. And the Israeli foreign minister issued a statement saying that this new partnership will keep Israel safe. For its part, the Palestinian Authority said that the summit was, quote, a harsh attack against the Palestinian people, unquote. Jordan did not attend the summit, but King Abdullah II visited Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank while the summit was taking place. It was his first visit to the West Bank since 2017. Meanwhile, in the United States, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill into law codifying a definition of anti-Semitism and prohibiting the state from doing business with companies that boycott Israel, including parent companies and subsidiaries. Colorado did the same thing just two days before Iowa. The Iowa governor said, quote, Today we express Iowa's enduring support for the state of Israel and our categorical rejection of anti-Semitism, unquote. Together, she said, as she continued, these bills send an important message. Iowa continues to stand shoulder to shoulder with the state of Israel, one of America's most important and reliable allies, get this, while fighting all forms of religious and ethnic discrimination. <laughs> I don't think you can do both of those things at the same time. <laughs> We're joined by Ariel Gold. Ariel's the co-executive director of the peace group Code Pink. Welcome back, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, I just want to give that a bit of a laugh, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with that then. The First Amendment. <laughs> exactly. That, that was the question that I, that I wrote for myself. Is there not a First Amendment to the Constitution? Aren't these, these anti-BDS laws just unconstitutional on their face? Well, they certainly are unconstitutional on their face. And even the Biden, even Joe Biden, when he was um, running for president, uh, his platform included recognition that while he doesn't support BDS, he does recognize that it's constitutionally pro uh, protected. Now, that doesn't mean that goes into anything that he actually does as president, <laughs> but it, it, it is there. And, uh, you know, we're actually now seeing this start to bleed over um, into what we've been warned about for years now since this attack on um, our right to boycott started, which is we're watching it bleed over into um, other movements like the environmental movement. And I forget which state it is, but there's actually legislation pending around um, not being allowed to boycott the fossil fuel companies. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. I want to ask you, too, about um, about these anti-BDS uh, lawsuits that we've seen uh, every once in a while uh, in, in Georgia, for example. Oh, my God, I'm blanking on her name. Stacey Abrams? No, uh, she filed a suit. She was supposed to give a speech. She used to, oh, uh, Abby Martin. Uh, Abby Martin. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry, Abby. Sorry. <laughs> Total mental blank. Abby Martin filed a suit against the state of Georgia because she was supposed to give a speech at a college there and she wouldn't sign the anti-BDS pledge. And so um, they canceled her speech. She filed a suit. The state legislature changed the wording of the of the law to make her suit moot. But the last I heard, the court agreed to continue hearing it because of the, the broader issue. To the best of your knowledge, Ariel, have there been any successes in trying to get these uh, these discriminatory laws shut down? There have 
been some successes, and I can't think of which state it was specifically, um, but there have been some successes. There was a teacher uh, who sued because, similarly, she refused to uh, sign the anti, uh, you know, support the, the all, Kansas. Love for Israel uh, pledge, yes, uh, won that suit. So we have seen successes. The problem is that they throw so many of these lawsuits at us every moment that it's very, very hard to keep up. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Hey, let's talk for a couple of minutes about uh, about this summit. It was just a one day meeting. It didn't get a whole ton of press. There was some coverage in the in the Post today and in the Times, uh, but it, it focused on Iran. Presumably, the discussion was about the JCPOA, which the Israelis are adamantly opposed to. Uh, the Biden administration has made, or at least had made in previous weeks, uh, a whole lot about rejoining the JCPOA. If the terms were right, uh, we were engaged in uh, in negotiations for months uh, with the Iranians, and then it went silent. We haven't heard anything. What's the latest with the JCPOA, and and would this summit have had any negative effect on on prospects for the U.S. rejoining? Away and, and rejoining it, we have to go back to a few things. First of all, we have to go back to uh, this being, you know, one of Biden's campaign promises, rejoining the JCPOA. Yep. However, when Biden came into office, he did not act on it quickly. And no. for so many people, Code Pink included, you know, screaming at him as much as we could, you know, you have act quick. You have to move quickly. And the reason for that, along with it, you know, the horrific uh, sanctions that Iranian people are suffering under and just the grotesqueness of what the U.S. has done, the, the strategic reason of that is because Iran was headed towards elections. And what sanctions do, traditionally, what they seem to do is not cause the people to rise up and throw and overthrow their government, whether it's Russia or Iran or any place. What they seem to do is um, embolden the hardliners. And sure enough, when Iran came to elections, that's who was emboldened and that's who won. So we have to begin there with realizing that when that occurs, it makes it much harder to get back into the deal. So yeah. we finally started negotiations and, you know, thank God, and we're glad that happened. And that's been going on for, I believe it's 11 months now these negotiations. And we are very, very close to a deal. I keep saying we could have a deal any moment. And that's very true. We could have a deal any moment. We could also not end up in a deal any moment, but we are within arm's reach of it. And the last thing being decided is whether um, the U.S. will remove the Iranian uh, National Guard, the IRGC, right. from the terror list. Iran is asking for that. And that's going back and forth. Now, we've had some unhelpfulness from supposedly liberal media outlets, such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, who throughout the whole month of uh, March, um, while being supposedly liberal, throughout the whole month of March, have only published two op-eds dealing directly oh. with the getting back into the Iran nuclear deal in the Washington Post. That was by uh, John never met a war. He didn't want to get involved in Bolton. Yep. And in, I remember that one it was by none other than the bed bug, uh, Brett Stevens, um, another hardline right winger. Yep. So that's been quite unhelpful, but we are still hoping that this comes together and we are still working towards 
really every day, and we have to keep working towards that. Israel, since, well, since the Iran deal was signed by Obama, has been trying to sabotage the deal. And right when Biden came into office, they pulled off um, a stunt. They've done a number of sabotages um, on Iranian nuclear, nuclear facilities, but this one in particular was right after, I think it was in the first week that Biden had come into office. And, you know, we're so critical of, rightfully, of Russia, I like to say Russia playing Russian roulette, um, you know, shooting at uh, nuclear power plants and not having shift changes at uh, Chernobyl, you know, all of these horrifically dangerous things. But we were not a piece when uh, Iran is, you know, exploding things at a nuclear enrichment facility. Right. Sorry, not Iran, Israel. Israel, yeah. 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 You know, I bet you that during Blinken's visit, Iran, Israel used that time to, you know, try to do everything that they could to keep this win for diplomacy coming back. Not to get too far afield, but I, I since you raised uh, the issue of Biden not moving quickly on the JCPOA, I wanted to ask you a, a related uh, question. Uh, there, there were two things that were sort of the crown jewels of the Obama administration's foreign policy. One was the JCPOA, and the other was was normalizing relations with Cuba. And uh, Donald Trump threw that in the in the trash can uh, virtually as soon as he was inaugurated as president. It seemed to me that once Joe Biden became president, it would have been easy to send an American ambassador back to Havana and to renormalize those relations, to to show the Cubans that at least the Democrats, when they're in the White House, are serious about improving relations with Cuba. And that hasn't happened. Why is that? If, first of all, it seems like low-hanging fruit it would be an easy victory in foreign policy for the Biden administration. It would be um, a way to to double down on the commitment to uh, to good diplomatic relations with our, our neighbors. And uh, Biden and Blinken haven't done any such thing. Why is that? Well, the only thing I can really say to that, because you're right, it's common sense. It just you know, is the obvious thing to do is that they're not serious about getting a win for diplomacy. I was afraid you'd say that. Biden ran on saying that he was going to, you know, work across the aisle. Well, he sure is, right? He's working across the aisle at keeping the uh, keeping the, the sanctions on Cuba. He's yeah. working across the aisle and not moving quickly to get us back into the Iran deal. He's working across the aisle. And it's a real shame in this case. Biden could have had that be, you know, his legacy. Yeah, that that was exactly what I was thinking. And that's a pretty proud legacy. It seems to me that that's something that you would want. Let, let me ask you, uh, let's get back to the JCPOA and, and to the Gulf. Uh, the, UAE, the UAE, rather, and Bahrain uh, hate and fear Iran. I, I lived in both of those countries. They hate the Iranians as much as the Israelis do. Uh, Egyptian and Moroccan relations with Iran are virtually non-existent. I don't think that that the Egyptians even have diplomatic relations with the Iranians right now. They broke it a couple of years ago. Was this meeting meant to pressure the United States to just walk away from the JCPOA? Or conversely, was it meant for the Americans to explain their position on the JCPOA? What should we take from this? I, I can't really say what it, you know, what was intended um, from it. 
But I, I can say that, um, you know, it was a, another aligning and um, affirming our relationships with repressive regimes across the Middle East. And um, I make no apologies for uh, the Iranian regime, which is both meddlesome across the Middle East and, you know, repressive towards its own people. But, you know, it's, a, it's an alignment that supports U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And the UAE and, and all of that and, and you know my guess is that's what the that's what a lot of the conference was about. Yeah, that that actually makes sense to me. King Abdullah went to the West Bank on the day of the summit. Do you have any idea what his message was to the Palestinians? Well, King Abdullah in general's message, like the rest of the Middle East lately, to the Palestinians, I imagine is somewhat tough luck, guys. Uh. <laughs> on your own. Uh, Jordan is one of the better countries, you know, towards the Palestinians that way. But the whole um, Arab world has has abandoned the Palestinians and uh, left them out to dry in favor of um you know, weapon sales and, uh, you know, which shows why there's alignment now with Israel. Mm-hmm. It does. You know, when I was living in the in the Gulf, I, I lived in the Gulf for years in, in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain. Uh, one of the things that struck me back then, and, and I'm dating myself, but I moved there 31 years ago now. But one of the things that struck me was how much the Gulf Arabs dislike Palestinians, right? The Palestinians are the class of workers that make the country run. The bankers, the teachers, the engineers, those are the Palestinians. Um, But when Yasser Arafat supported Saddam Hussein after the invasion of Kuwait, it sealed the fate of the Palestinians in the Gulf. And, And the Gulf countries, for the most part, started throwing Palestinians out. Now, they've worked their way back, back into these countries in the intervening decades. But I'm wondering, is, is this long time dislike of Palestinians, the basis of these feelings after all these years, where you've got Bahrain and, and the UAE opening relations with the Israelis and just kind of screwing the Palestinians? Well, first of all, I want to say that, you know, the people of these Arab countries, the people of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE, have long supported the Palestinians. Yes. But I, I think it's the leadership that we're looking at. And again, I you're absolutely right. Initially, with the U.S. Um, to get you know U.S. weapons sales, but now it's you know look at uh, what a leader Israel is in security, and they're the largest exporter of uh, weaponized drones in the world. We make wow, I didn't know that they export more than us than we do. So you know, initially, I would say it was to appease just the U.S., but now you know to appease Israel as well. Oh, that's very interesting. I actually did not know that. Oh, that that's. I think it's also it's always. I don't know. It's it's easy to uh, ascribe things sometimes to national sentiment that can also just as easily be explained by money. If yeah. You don't if you don't care, you could just sort of go where the money is, and yeah. certainly it is not in Palestine or in this, helping you know, the Palestinian resistance. Unfortunately, Ariel's right that that it, it's the governments and not necessarily the people of these countries. I remember going to to lunch one day in Kuwait. I was a young junior diplomat. I went to lunch with the deputy minister of defense at his home. And he said that he had come from a cabinet meeting in which the prime minister said in six months, and this was in very early 1991, in six months, there would be no Palestinians in Kuwait. And I reported that back to the ambassador. It was Ambassador Skip Ganim at the time. And 
he immediately sent a cable to uh, the Secretary of State saying, we've got to do something to stop this. This is going to be a disaster. And that was U.S. policy at the time to to weigh on the the Kuwaitis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, you know, everybody in the Gulf. Don't throw the Palestinians out. They didn't do anything wrong and they make your country run. And, uh, you know, at least for a while we failed. But it seems like, you know, eventually they started working their way back over there. Um, Final thoughts, Ariel. We've got about a minute left. Sure. Uh, Final thoughts. There's so much say right now, I want to say that Code Pink, we are working heavily um, on the war in Ukraine. We're, you know, horrified at what's happening, both at or first off at Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine and then at uh, what the U.S. did initially to provoke it, but is also doing to prolong it. I mean, the U.S. needs to really step up and tell uh, Vladimir Zelensky, tell, uh, tell Ukraine that they have to reach um, a negotiating agreement. It is so infrequent. I agree with Naftali Bennett. I, you know, I don't know if I can come up with another time. I agree with <laughs> Naftali Bennett. Seriously. That was Ariel Gold. She's co-director of the peace group Code Pink. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take a break and we'll come back with another hour. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm Michelle Witte here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, uh, touching back on now developments in Turkey between Russia and Ukraine, uh, getting into the standoff that is really brewing uh, between European states and Russia over how to pay for their gas and dipping into a few other Foreign policy questions here with one of my favorite guests, journalist and writer Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what was uh, achieved in Turkey today, which, you know, John started off the show talking about this. Maybe it's not more than a than a pretty good start, but that is more than we have had for, you know, for some time. Right. It's at least not a dead end. And so basically bo- both sides did agree to some measures that they can take unilaterally. and. Both sides continue to want things that the other cannot really fulfill. Russia has said it would drastically reduce military activity near Kiev and Cherniev uh, to help build trust, to help facilitate further talks. Ukraine has said it could promise to not host foreign bases, uh, bases right, uh, and that it would so discuss the status of Crimea in 15 years, right, over the next 15 years. However... Ukraine's offer of neutrality also includes getting security guarantees from some NATO states, which, you know, is probably not far enough away from actually being a part of NATO to get anywhere with Russia. Russia, of course, is also going to want sanctions relief at some point, which it is not up to Ukraine to offer. So I, I want to ask, what? how do you feel about what's come out of this meeting so far and, and the fact that the two sides are going to continue talking? Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think, the, uh, I think it's, a, it's a very tentative, very tentative, extremely tentative, hyper-tentative start. <laughs> 
but uh but it's 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 something uh and so therefore uh um maybe it'll lead to some kind of eventually some kind of solution i mean the solution is not impossible i mean i mean essentially what russia wants is this like you know is number one uh, uh, for the Ukraine to see to cede control of the Crimea and the Donbass, um, and also to promise never ever to join NATO, um, uh, and also to take steps to root out the uh, the, the neo no the neo Nazi element, especially in the western part of the country. Now, those sound easy on paper, but they're really really hard in practice. I mean, for example, seeding the Crimea and the uh, and the and the Donbass could very easily easily lead to an explosion uh, by the Azov Brigade Battalion and other such forces, which, which would be furious at the at what they would see as a natural uh, a national betrayal. Um, I don't really know how you go about, you know, uprooting neo-Nazi forces in in Lvov and other such areas. I mean, I don't know how the process happens. Um, and so, you know, so they made a tentative start, but they have a very long way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that both sides are going to have to let go of some of the stated desires at the beginning of this if it is something that can be solved through a, you know, with a peace process and a peace agreement and not, uh, you know, an occupation. The other thing that I wanted to to revisit is, uh, you know, we we talked, of course, on Monday about Joe Biden over the weekend uh, saying, you know, for, for God's sake, this man can't stay in power about Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, a bunch of people going, well, hey, sounds like sounds like you're calling for regime change in <laughs> Russia. And of course, the White House walked that back, said, no, we're not. This doesn't reflect a policy change. This is, you know. A, a desire spoken in emotion, right? Not, but we, we you know, we're, we're not doing any work toward that. And Joe Biden himself has said, I'm not going to walk back anything. I make no apologies. Uh, you know, he I was say adamant how, about that. Yeah, I say how I feel. Right. But the thing is, I mean, Joe Biden sometimes gets credit for doing this and, and sort of gets some credit for like, speaking the truth sometimes, even if it's awkward. I think he also sometimes just se- seems like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But you know, I, I, I don't know if we should see this as charming and instead see this as you. I think it's you, dangerous. You, you have some responsibility as a president of the United States to control what what you say in the heat of the moment, I would think, especially if you are the head of a country that has a history of of, you know, directly and indirectly interfering in the internal politics of other countries to help install the kind of government you want. You know, I feel like it's naive for Joe Biden to say, oh, I was just talking about my personal desire and not, you know, official U.S. policy or something we're working toward. Dan, it just seems like you have to ignore a heck of a lot to just let Joe Biden get away with, I uh, just said this in the heat of the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, it was a, it was an amazingly dangerous and provocative statement. And, the, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, overthrowing Putin means carrying the war to Moscow. Uh, this is at a time when everyone else is trying to, you know, to, to tamp things down, to proceed with negotiations and see to it that the war does not spread beyond the Ukraine's borders. But Biden was saying the opposite in the most you know, provocative way possible. It's extraordinary. Um, and I think that people, people are terrified by this. And for God's sakes, the Europeans have got to be asking themselves, you know, 
how did they get into this fix in the first place? Uh, I mean, uh, two months ago, things were going along fine. The, 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 uh, the, the Nord Stream 2 was awaiting final approval. Uh, Germany's energy supplies were essentially fixed for years to come. Uh, and now suddenly, you know, Germany is facing a, an economic wipeout. Uh, and, the, and the Europeans are being dragged into a broader war, it seems, by a, a uh, by an American president who's you know who's a geriatric case, if ever there was one, and who seems to be in, intent on channeling you know uh, uh, Winston Churchill at his most militant moments. Uh, it's it's just astonishing, and it really goes to show the U.S. responsibility in this whole debacle. Yeah. And Joe Biden continuing to want to say and, you know, people who want to minimize this saying like, no, he's just a guy. You can't expect him to not. You know, he's not you're not just a guy. You're the president of the United States. And you spent a lot of money and went to a lot of effort to get to that position. So it's really it is just sort of it is not an acceptable excuse. Oh, I'm just a dude who had a strong feeling. It's very it's it's very naive. Just naive. That is the most charitable way of of describing it. <laughs> Sometimes I try to be charitable. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, at, at, at its worst, it's a, a plain old warmonger. Yes. You know, and you're in a position where a simple quip can can move, you know, financial markets or a, a, an off-the-cuff, whether it was or not, but an off-the-cuff statement that he claims this was could lead to the the prolonging of a of a major conflict. Yeah. You know, if if Vladimir Putin were to take Joe Biden at face value and say, okay, the American goal is to overthrow me. Well, if I were Vladimir Putin, I believe that I would have to double down yeah. on what I was doing in the in Ukraine. Of course, that does suppose that we think we like nobody thought that until Joe Biden said it, which of course, yeah, of course, is not true, of but, course. Yeah. Well, I mean, why doesn't uh, why doesn't Vladimir Putin call for the overthrow of a uh, of uh, Joe Biden? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would certainly calm passions, wouldn't it? Right, right. Well, let's uh, I want to come back to this issue of uh, energy for Europe, uh, because we are coming up on a, a sort of a deadline, right? The the G7 countries are still refusing to do what Russia wants, which is to pay for Russian gas in rubles. Uh, Russia is saying you can't have it for free. <laughs> You're going to have to pay us somehow. Uh, the rest of the EU has not necessarily refused, but they haven't been able to figure out exactly how that would work. And apparently Russia has said it, it will decide on a mechanism by Thursday, which is also being described as a deadline. And so it seems like maybe this is going to be here, here's your mechanism. Uh, you can take it or leave it. Although, you know, I think Russia would quite like the money. Um, but it does seem like this could come to a head this week. And so I wonder, Dan, if you want to make any predictions about how how this is going to resolve itself. Well, I think the only only way to resolve itself is if the uh, the is if the Europeans do what Russia says. I mean, um, you know, it's it's very curious how these economic processes work because uh, I mean, actually, um, oil prices weakened uh, with the start of negotiations in Istanbul. So essentially, Russia has forfeited a lot of money to get these talks going. And if the talks break down or if lines harden in other ways, then the price of oil goes up and Russia actually benefits. So, uh, so you know, so if, um, if, if Russia cuts off, ends up cutting off uh, gas to, uh, to Europe, then the, the price of energy will probably skyrocket. Russia will make a mint. Uh, um, 
the Europeans will wind up, you know, in the toilet. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and so therefore Russia has no, has no real need to reason the compromise. And with, and with, with uh, the, the Biden administration sanctioning everything that moves in Russia, um, it has even less motive to, to, uh, to compromise. So I see a, a head-on collision. And it is also, I mean, it's important, I think, to remember that it, it, Germany is one of the the countries in Europe that is still refu- refusing to consider any kind of embargo on on Russian energy, right? So it's not just, you know, nations that are that you can push around all that easily. Well, it has to. I mean, I mean, German industry is really vulnerable. Uh, and if they, and if, they, if, uh, if Russian gas is cut off, then you will see. Uh, some major reverberations in terms of the German economy. I mean, factory closings, layoffs, uh, a lot of workers getting really profoundly upset with their government, uh, leading to political instability. uh, this is something the Germans should want to avoid at all costs. I guess. What do you think? What do you think happens if we get to Thursday? Russia says, "Here's your mechanism for paying us in rubles." Uh, and you know, the the countries here, the European countries who want to keep buying gas, go, "Okay, you know, all right, we'll do it. We'll keep doing it in your in rubles." What do you What do you think is the response of uh, of the press? Right, the press of the populations. Uh, and not even necessarily in those countries, because I think a lot of people in those countries want to continue to heat their homes. Um, but what what response would you expect to see, or would you expect it to sort of be kind of qui- go sort of quietly? No, I expect the the, uh, the American press to uh, accuse the uh, the Germans of being moral cowards, you know, and uh, and you know, and not caring about anything anything other than other than their their pocketbooks, which of course is hypocritical in the extreme. Um, uh, so you know, so yes, I mean the the the, the press has gotten very good at this and. In recent weeks, of you know, of uh, of engaging this kind of moral blackmail, so I expect you know to do the same thing uh, if come Thursday the Germans uh, crater to Russian demands, and they really have no choice to crater to crater to Russian demands. I mean, if I if I go to, a, to the liquor store and I want to buy my favorite bottle of wine, and I find that the price is going up by five bucks, what do you want me to do? Should I should I should I hit the the, the 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 store owner over the head? Should I stage some kind of demonstration uh, on the sidewalk, or should I still just fork over the money and go home? And uh, that's that's what you end up doing. Dan, uh, one of our one of our viewers has a question for you. He he asks if you could comment on Turkey's relations with Russia. He says it looks like Erdogan is playing all sides at the same time. This has sort of been an ongoing theme from the beginning of this uh, this conflict that the that the Turks are, you know, maybe even trying to rehabilitate themselves while playing uh, peacemaker and uh, trying to maintain good relations with both the Russians and the Europeans, with the Ukrainians and the Americans. What do you think Erdogan's uh, goal is here? I don't know. You know, and Erdogan is really, I mean, he is really one of the most strangest political characters Amen. Uh, on the uh, on the global stage. I mean, he is a, he specializes in being, you know, simultaneously, you know, nice and irritating. He, he aims to, you know, to, to, to help people out. And then the next, the next step, you know, you know, kicks him in the shins. Uh, he has been playing both sides of the fence, you know, since he came to power, because as a kind of a, 
moderate Muslim brotherhood kind of figure, uh, he has kind of put forward a kind of very contradictory package of Sharia law combined with a certain degree of liberalism plus free trade, free markets, et cetera, et cetera, which other countries have found by turns to be sort of interesting, even captivating, but then irritating. Yeah. Now, he took Azerbaijan's side in the war with Armenia. Yep. He, he seems to have some kind of neo-Ottoman imperial ambitions regarding Central Asia, although that's really unclear. He has, you know, he has sparred, ultimately sparred and made up with Putin, um, done the same thing with the U.S. So no one really knows quite what to make of the guy. Now, meanwhile, his economy is in ruins. From everything I can tell, he is profoundly unpopular at home. Uh, so, and, and, and everyone, everyone predicts his, his political demise, except that somehow he manages to hold on to power. Um, he sure does. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a real puzzle. Uh, but the answer is I, I regard him as one of the more inscrutable, inscrutable persons on the uh, on the political stage. I would agree. Yeah. Hey, since you brought up uh, Azerbaijan, Dan, I, I wanted to ask if you can tell us anything or what, what you think is going on in Nagorno-Karabakh, right? The, we spoke to you uh, on this show back in 2020 when conflict erupted again between Azerbaijan and Armenia over that contested area with ethnic Armenians uh, suffering a great deal. Now, uh, Armenia earlier this week was complaining that Azeri troops had, had entered an area that Russian peacekeepers are supposed to be governing. Um, Azerbaijan says Armenia started it by trying to commit acts of sabotage. Um, this has sort of been coupled with calls that were quickly dismissed by Georgia for uh, the opening of some kind of second front against Russia. Uh, but I think a question is, you know, there are places where Russia is a, a security guarantor, where there are Russian peacekeepers sort of uh, involved in attempts to mediate some of these uh, ongoing conflicts. And I wonder if this if the war in Ukraine is, is sort of offering an opportunity to some sides in, in those conflicts or in this one in particular to try and push, you know, push for to get something done while Russia is is distracted. Yeah, I think it's something that makes sense. I mean, first of all, the the, the call by by a member of uh, of Zelensky's government uh, for uh, Georgia to open up a second front against Russia is <laughs> just completely bonkers. Yeah. And then and the fact that it occurs while negotiations are getting away in, in Istanbul is makes it even all the more bizarre. Yeah. And it, that makes you wonder, you know, I mean, how united are the are the Ukrainians, you know, behind this idea of negotiations mm. or are they just completely crazy and seeking out, you know, a, a, a battle to the death with Russia. And yeah, I mean, I mean, Russia is clearly, you know, it has its hands full of the Ukraine that, I mean, that there is no argument over that. Um, and so the more it has its hands full in the Ukraine, the less it has left over to deal with traditional peacekeeping, you know, uh, operations elsewhere in the former Soviet Union. You know, so uh, so that means that the um, that the the countries like uh, Azerbaijan are have a freer hand to do what they want, um, and so uh, therefore, if Russia falls apart, we can expect expect trouble to break out. You know, on that whole Central Asian uh, Trans Caucasus, you know, Central Asian region. 
But I mean, would it even take Russia falling apart or just, you know, sort of an opportune moment for Azerbaijan to to push a little more to get something, you know, come to some deal that that greatly favors them and not Armenia? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, what, what, you know, short of falling apart, if it simply is distracted and doesn't have the resources to uh, to 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 maintain its peacekeep, peacekeeping presence in the Gorno-Karabakh, then yeah, then the then that Azerbaijan will feel that the, the pressure is off and it can do what it wants to. And if Russia really falls apart, you know, then uh, then the, you know the, the game is up as far as Central Asia is concerned, uh, and uh, and uh, you know those countries will fall into disarray very rapidly. The other question that I wanted to get to while we have you uh, is this very strange saga of the suspected poisoning of Roman Abramovich and uh, the Ukrainian MP Rustem Umarov, who are involved in a sort of parallel negotiation process to the one underway in Turkey. And it was the Wall Street Journal. So there seems to be the the Wall Street Journal first reported this suspected poisoning. um, But Bellingcat also jumped on it and said, actually, this is our deal. Um, But so the Wall Street Journal picked it up. It, it was picked up all over the place. And as always happens, right, aside from an obligatory uh, alleged or suspected in the first paragraph is kind of treated as a done deal throughout. And we got more detail uh, yesterday afternoon and today about the symptoms of this uh, suspected poisoning, which seem to have been sore eyes and skin lasting for a few hours or a day after this team spent the night in a rented apartment in Kiev. And so Bellingcat claims the story. They say one of their researchers did remote and on-site investigations of the affected people and concluded that they had been attacked with a, a chemical weapon. The Wall Street Journal says no investigation happened in Ukraine because all of these people who were supposed to have been poisoned were in too big a hurry to get to their next meeting to be seen by an investigator. Again, I will, I'm going to say repeatedly, I'm not in the heads of any of these people. Sure. But if I thought someone had used a, a chemical on me to affect my skin and my eyesight, I would definitely want someone to look into it for me. <laughs> I would not say, look, forget it. I would just splash my face with some water and I'm going to go to this next meeting. But, you know, whatever. Maybe we're all different. The other egregious thing, though, is that this story is disputed by some of the very people who have supposedly been attacked, right? And the Wall Street Journal, I think, did some some pretty uh, interesting cherry picking in reporting what one of these guys said, Umarov, right? Rustem Umarov. I say interesting. I would not have done it. I, I think it is. I, I think it's a journalistic malpractice, right? So the journal reports this incident. And then says, don't worry, everybody, everybody has recovered. Everybody has improved. And it in that paragraph says, Umarov tweeted, I'm fine. What he actually tweeted was, I'm fine. This is my response to all the yellow news spreading around. Please do not trust any unverified information. We have an information war going on as well. Again, I'm not in this guy's head, but that sounds less like I've recovered than uh, you know, nothing happened. It's you know, journalistically 
unethical. You shouldn't and do that. It, he, it really makes it sound like Umarov tweeted, "I I have recovered from mm-hmm. this attack of poisoning." Not, I am d- disputing the characterization of this entire episode, right? Not even American officials have really uh, dove on this one, right? The BBC also did a report on it where the anonymous American official said just didn't really, it seemed like environmental factors. Mm -hmm. I do not know what happened, but I wanted to get your thoughts on on how this story has unfolded. Well, first of all, I agree with you about the uh, the journal's editing of that that quote. It really is shameful. I mean, it it is shameful. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and number two, the, the the operative phrase is information war. I mean, this is you know, the, I mean, both sides, but especially the U.S. Uh, is just pouring vast resources into this effort. I mean, I I haven't seen the press behave this way. It's more far more extreme than it was during the run up to the uh, 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq. I mean, it's much more extreme, and these we are all being subject subject to high decibel you know, uh, levels of propaganda 24-7. And it's incredibly one-sided. You have really no idea what's going on. You can't believe anything. And and this report sort of seems to fall into that category. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I want to know what happened to Denish Kireyev. Mm. Kireyev was a member of the Ukrainian negotiating team who on March 6th or thereabouts, wound up dead at the hands of the SBU, the uh, Ukrainian Intelligence Service. Now, first, the SBU said he was a traitor and was executed for that reason, without a trial, apparently. Then he said he was a national hero who somehow wound up dead. Uh, we don't know what happened, but but we we... We, we know enough to be extremely concerned about what's going on behind the scenes in that government, you know how it behaves, you know, what's taking place. Uh, and, and it sounds highly disturbing that if negotiators being, are being knocked off by their own side. You had the Ukrainian foreign minister in an interview, this is reported in the, in the Post, uh, saying he's he's advising anyone going to negotiate with Russia not to eat or drink anything and to avoid yeah. touching services. And again, this supposed poisoning, if it happened, it was, happened in an apartment that had been rented. But I, I mean, I think, Dan, I think, you know, obviously, politically, Ukraine is very split. It's sort of why why all of this... It, It's part of the many reasons we have arrived at this point in the first place, right? There is a very big uh, political split between, generally speaking, roughly speaking, the east of the country and the west of the country, right? There's a big language division. uh, There's there's ethnic divisions. And I'm, you know, I'm making sort of uh, some rough generalizations here in order to be able to talk about it. But I think, yeah, I would feel very confident saying that there are definitely people within Ukraine who who are hoping for different outcomes here. And there's also... also a split between Zelensky and the near right and the Azov battalion and the far right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so if if Zelensky tries to make some kind of peace where he essentially cedes uh, the Donbass and the Crimea to Russian control, what will Azov do? Well, this is a whole problem with the Minsk Accords, right? I mean, this is a sure. problem with implementing the Minsk Accords, aside from maybe a sort of honeymoon period at the very beginning when they were when they were struck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, of the Irish Civil War, you know, in the early 1920s, which broke out when the negotiators decided to, to secede control of six northern counties that had Protestant majorities. 
there was a civil war that lasted for, I think it was two years, and in some way lasted, you know, lasted well into the 1970s. So, you know, so will, will Zelensky be, be, you know, be, be strung up by the Azov Battalion? Will Zelensky wind up stringing up the Azov Battalion instead before they, they can get to him? I mean, I think things are very unstable. Uh, I don't think Zelensky is really in control. I think that the uh, that the um, the the Ukrainians and their American backers are fighting an inf- an information war, whose purpose is to keep inconvenient questions like this off the table. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable. And I'm sure, of course, there are differences of opinion as to how this should be resolved within Russia as there are within the United States. But yeah, this has been a theme here, even in the post. You have the post quoting an anonymous. Uh, source saying uh saying there's there's thought that if this happened it was it was probably a third party um which you know you would have to think is probably i don't know if i if i was guessing i would say is more likely to come from within ukraine than uh within russia yeah that that makes that makes perfect sense to me but then again you know we don't know anything no you know because there's this fog of war which the which the uh which the u.s is doing its best to uh to uh, to create. Yes. So we what? don't know what's happening. Exactly. You know, we don't we can make wild guesses. Yeah. We don't know anything and you don't generally know more from reading, you know, 100, 200, 450 words on on any given topic if you're reading it in in the Wall Street Journal or necessarily in the Washington Post and that is a a great shame right now. Yes, I totally agree. That was Dan Lazar, journalist and writer. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Norfolk, Virginia Sheriff Bob McCabe was found guilty earlier this year of public corruption. He faces 20 years in prison. His co-conspirator, Jerry Boyle, the former CEO of prison health care contractor Correct Care Solutions, was sentenced to three years in prison after pleading guilty to honest services fraud and mail fraud. That was for paying bribes to get the jail's $3.2 million contract. This kind of thing happens with some frequency across the United States. Prison health care is among the most corrupt and least effective in America. We're joined by Paul Wright, the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Hey, it seems every time I open an issue of Prison Legal News magazine, I read an article about corruption surrounding prison health care. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened in Norfolk, Virginia, between the sheriff there and the Correct Care Solutions CEO. This was big news in the state of Virginia and uh, and was covered pretty closely in The Washington Post. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, corruption is not just is not just limited to the uh, prison medical care contractors, That's right. all the private contractors. I mean, just in the last 15 years or so, we've seen uh, the head of the uh, Illinois prison system, Doug Schneider. He went to prison for taking bribes from Wexford Health Services. 
in uh, Mississippi, Charles Epps. He was taking bribes from everyone from the uh, Global Telling, the telephone contractor, the Core Civic and Geo Corporation, the private prison companies. I mean, everyone down to the company that was supplying the prison system with uh, cups for urine testing, shaking down for bribes. Uh, here in Florida, um, James Crosby, the Florida DOC director, he went to prison for taking bribes on the canteen operators. So what you see around the country, though, is that the, these contractors are just rife with bribery and corruption and the same lack of any type of oversight or accountability that permeates the criminal justice system really allows corruption not just to 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 occur, but to actually to, to flourish and to thrive. And and I'd say that the cyber corruption is literally the tip of the iceberg. And to the ex- and to the extent that, you know, we're not seeing more of it prosecuted or investigated, I think it's it's mostly because of a lack of interest on the part of other law enforcement agencies to investigate and vigorously prosecute the other law enforcement agencies that are kind of the epicenter of this type of corruption. You would think it would be the opposite, where where just to prove to Americans that the system works the way it's supposed to work, that they would come down like a ton of bricks on on corrupt uh, leaders, whether it's in in the prison system or you had an article in Prison Legal News, I think it was last month, about the former Suffolk County, New York uh, prosecutor. Uh, being prosecuted for, you know, bribery and pay for play and all kinds of different stuff. And and looking at, I I think it was five years, was it not? Yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is, you know, the cyber corruption is, for the most part, here's the part that that really gets me. As I mentioned, Charles Epps, he was sentenced to 27 years in prison on corruption charges for taking bribes from everyone under the sun that was doing business with the Mississippi DOC. James Crosby was sentenced to 12 years for taking bribes canteen vendors in Florida. But what gets me is the companies keep the contracts and no one from the companies giving the bribes goes to prison. Oh, my God. I mean, that, that's part of the thing is like you'd think that um, if there's any type of disincentive uh, to provide bribes and be corrupt, it would be and, – and it's interesting because, you know, in, in so many other contexts in the criminal justice system – uh, for example, with drug dealers, um, you know, the the government is notorious for forfeiting, and we talked about it here on this show, is they're notorious for making drug dealers forfeit their their property and their assets. And unfortunately, heck, they even go after the, the, the property and the assets of people who aren't drug dealers, aren't engaged in criminal activity. But the fact that you've got these companies that are using criminal bribery to obtain government contracts, and ultimately, I mean, those are taxpayer dollars. It's your money. It's my money that these companies are using bribery to take. And the fact that, you know, they they use the criminal bribery to get the contracts, and then they still keep the contracts. That's one of those things that, you know, there's there's a very low um, incentive or there's very little in the way of disincentives for them not to engage in this type of criminal behavior. And, And the whole thing is that the notion that there's a bidding process or that there's, there's supposed to be some type of transparency in how contracts are awarded. You know, we know from time after time after time that basically, you know, these companies got these contracts through outright criminal bribery, through cronyism, through lobbying, through everything under the sun except for the basic metric of, you know, how good of a job are you doing and are you saying, saving the taxpayer any money? That's the last thing that's on anyone's mind. And frankly, I'd say that, you know, it just isn't even part of the equation 
Because 30 years of the private prison industry where there's medical care, running the prisons themselves, you know, whatever, um, no one actually shows that they actually save any money to the taxpayer. Um, and they get these contracts through the cronyism and the bribery and the lobbying. They're not getting it because of what a great job they're doing. Yeah, let's let's talk about that, actually. Uh, in Prison Legal News, there was another um, article about Cuyahoga County, uh, Ohio. This is uh, the, the county that includes Cleveland. This is a major, a major local prison system. The director of the Cuyahoga County Jail was sentenced to nine months in jail uh, for falsifying records and for dereliction of duty. What he did was when he became the head of the, the jail, he privatized everything, which is not uncommon. But what he did was he cut food and he cut medicine or medical care. And so um, in an investigation that followed, they found food that was not human-grade food. It was animal-grade. They found food that, was, that had been expired for two years that was being fed to prisoners. Nine prisoners died within a six-month period because of a lack of medical care. Uh, they found non-working toilets. They found parts of the jail that had no running water. They found prisoners in filthy clothes. They found filthy mattresses on the day room floor where prisoners were forced to sleep, some of whom were pregnant. And uh, finally, a judge said, and I, I loved this when I saw it in the, uh, in the um, article, at sentencing, the judge said, how do you sleep at night? She said, I don't know how you can live with yourself. How do you sleep at night? And sentenced him to the maximum, which was nine months in the local clink. So my question is, is, is there a solution to this? Do we bring this to an end by incarcerating wardens and prison directors? Is the solution in the courts? Is the solution in the state legislatures? How do we put an end to this? Well, the state legislatures have pretty much shown themselves to be totally equal on this, on these, as has the executive branch. I mean, we're back to the lack of any type of oversight or accountability across the board. Um, you know, but I would say that it's interesting is that, you know, for every other problem, real or perceived in American society, um, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, harsh prison sentences has been viewed as the solution to it, except for when it comes to government corruption. And, you know, and you don't you would think that the, the standard should be highest when it comes to um, people that have taken an oath of office to, you know, basically do the right thing. And what gets me, especially when you're talking about the, you know, these sheriffs, these, um, you know, these uh, directors or secretaries or commissioners, whatever their title is, systems is, you know, these are high level officials. Usually the sheriff is usually the highest uh, ranking or highest yes. level. Uh, government official in the county, you, they're, they're almost always the highest ranking law enforcement official in the county. And they have a tremendous, and usually they have the biggest budget. They have the most people, their centers of power, graft, and corruption uh, within whatever county they're in. And when you're talking about the, um, about the DOC directors, I mean, in, inevitably they're cabinet level officials. I mean, and they're all pulling down big salaries. I mean, they're pulling down one hundred fifty, two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year as the head of heads of very large agencies. And for big states, they have tens of thousands of employees and multi-billion-dollar budgets under their command. And they're selling out their offices for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in bribes. I mean, that that's what I find really shocking is the fact that. 
And, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, for a long time, for, for I would say up until around the 70s or the 80s, the complaint was always, well, uh, prisons and corrections, they can't attract good people because the pay is so low. Right. And, and in some places, that's still the case. You know, if you're a guard in Mississippi or Florida, yes, the pay is abysmally low. But if you're a guard in places like California or New York or Massachusetts, you're making really good money. And with overtime, it's not uncommon for prison guards to be pulling down six-figure salary. Right. And, and they have benefits that most Americans can only dream of in terms of, you know, sick leave, pensions, um, and other benefits. And the fact that, you know, you want to say, well, gosh, can't you do your job, do it professionally and not be corrupt and on the take and taking bribes? It doesn't seem like that's too much to ask for. But the reality in America is that's crazy talk. Right. The fact that no one – we also have a head-in-the-sand attitude as well where no one wants to know the level of corruption. Uh, there's two professors um, – I, I, I'm forgetting their names at the moment – but going back to the Clinton era, um, the federal government doles out these uh, community policing grants. They're called uh, the acronym is COPS, and they go to the communities, and they're supposed to be used by police departments to just hire cops. They're just supposed to be used for that. But little auditing has been done shows there's massive amounts of abuse. There's massive amounts of corruption, misuse of these funds. And these two professors have said for decades now, hey, we should at least get an idea if the federal government's going to be doling out tens of billions of dollars to local police departments. We should at least have an idea if it's being misappropriated, yeah. used or not. Right. And that gets zero traction. No one in Congress, no one in the Department of Justice, no one in the White House wants to know what the cops are doing with, with this federal grant money. Um, so, so that's why I say is that, you know, the it's, in some respects, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, we've got a police state where the the, the cops wag, you know, um, dictate to the dog, you know, the hand that feeds it. You know, right. one of those things where you'd think that normally in a, in a normal system, one would think that um, government bureaucrats or government employees serve at the pleasure of the government and, and to serve the interests of the people. But what I think we've seen time and time again, both with everything from the corruption to the asset forfeiture um, to the kickbacks that prisons and jails get from uh, telephone companies, for example, it just seems like they're just it's just a giant racket where they're just in it to line their own pockets and the public be damned. I think you're exactly right. And it, it's funny to me, too, because the the federal government, federal prosecutors have a reputation for being more gung ho when it comes to uh, to prosecuting corruption. And, you know, this is a federal program. This would be a federal crime. And nobody's even interested in, in investigating it, let alone to prosecute it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I want to ask you about uh, what is arguably the most notorious uh, maximum security penitentiary in America. This is uh, Angola in Louisiana. You ran an article in Prison Legal News about an incident at Angola, which is, I guess, formally called the David Wade Correctional Center. It says a bench trial is ongoing over guards who ordered a mentally ill prisoner to take a shower this winter. And then when he was still naked and wet, they made him stand in front of an open window and they turned a fan on so that he would freeze. Um, it's called bluesing. And it's something that I guess prison guards do uh, to torture prisoners. The defendants in this case denied that it ever took place, but the former head of psychiatry 
for the Ohio state prison system, testified as an expert witness that from what she observed in Louisiana, mental health care is non-existent except for medication, and even the medication was not accurately administered, documented, or supervised. Tell us a little bit about mental health care in the prison system. Is that solution in the courts? Is it in the Congress? And and just to clarify, the David Wade Correctional Center is a prison separate from the Angola. Oh, it is? Okay. There's there's separate prisons. I see. Add those. So don't. (laughs) um, So, you know, so that you're, you're correct. Basically, the problem is that, you know, medical care for prisoners around the country tends to be, you know, it goes from bad to abysmal. Like, I don't think there's a single prison in America that if anyone had the choice and said, hey, if, if you're going to be sick, what prison or jail do you want to be in because you're going to get good treatment or even adequate treatment? Right. None of them, none of them have, have, have that. And the problem is that, you know, which, what we see in so many of these prisons that we're seeing in Louisiana for the, and there's multiple class action lawsuits challenging the inadequate medical care uh, in, in a bunch of these prisons in Louisiana is basically what, what I would call systemic deficiencies. Is these and, by, and when you talk about a systemic lack of medical care, this means these places aren't even capable of dealing with routine illness, physical or, or mental health. And the mental health part is really important because depending on the statistics and who's doing the counting, Anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the prison population is seriously mentally ill, and by seriously mentally ill, this yes. is you know people have some serious issues. And so, like, hey, Johnny has some quirks or he's a little eccentric. Is no, they're paranoid schizophrenic. They're, yeah, they have serious bipolar disorder. And let me interrupt you. I, I've read that 85 percent of prisoners in U.S. prisons have some sort of mental illness, some form of mental illness. 85 percent. You're talking about seriously mentally ill. Prisoners, right, and and so you'd think that that you know mental health care treatment would be a top priority, and what we found is that it isn't. And all too often, when passes for treatment are literally, um, you know, doctors who've lost their medical licenses, um, yes. pulling out psychotropic medications, literally by by the bucketful, um, to prisoners with you know they're not getting a lot of much in the way of treatment. They're actually not getting a lot of the way of diagnosis. And this is what passes for mental health care treatment. But, but in the case that's, that's pending in, in uh, Louisiana, and, and there's also similar cases pending in, in uh, Mississippi and um, Alabama as well, federal judges are repeatedly finding that the medical care in these, in these facilities are systemically failing to provide adequate medical care, that uh, dozens of prisoners are, are needlessly dying every year from, from treatable medical illnesses and uh, prisoners are, they have very high levels of suicide, which is, you know, almost the, the ultimate indictment of a prison's uh, lack of a mental health care system. And, but then the other thing is also just the, and what's even harder to quantify is just the sheer human misery and pain yeah. that lacks, that the systemic lacks of uh, medical and mental health care impose on people. And the Supreme Court long ago in the 1970s recognized that the lack of medical care um, can and does violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on a cruel and unusual, cruel and unusual punishment. And, and the thing is, the thing about it is, you know, everyone listening to the show has gotten sick at some point, whether it's a serious illness or a mild illness. Now, just imagine you're sick and you can't get medical care. Yeah. You can't access the medical care. Or you go to seek medical care and the person tells you there's nothing wrong with you, malingering. You're a malingerer 
and they charge you $2 if you're a malingerer. Yeah, they take $2 out of your commissary account. And if you're poor and you're making, you know, 16 cents an hour, $2 hurts. You know, it's tough. You know, I remember when I was at, uh, at FCI Loretto, they had this thing that everybody called zombie pill line, right? If you had diabetes, you got in line at 7 a.m. and at 6 p.m. and you got a shot of, uh, of insulin. Uh, but zombie pill line was at 7. And that's when all the lunatics got in line for their antipsychotic medication, they would take them there in the line. You get a little cup with your pills and a little cup of water. And then they were zombies for the rest of the, for the rest of the, the night. And that was so they, you know, didn't kill anybody or kill themselves or go nuts or hang themselves or you know, whatever. But that's what we called it. it. It wasn't to treat them. It wasn't to make them better. It was to make them so placid that they didn't hurt anybody. That was the only treatment they got. And, and this is the norm around the country. I mean, one of the things we, we've seen some reports, um, you know, especially like in women's prisons. This is one of the things that's not really talked about a lot. But, you know, we've seen some reports that like women's prisons in Vermont and Wisconsin and some of these other places where 70 percent of the prison population is being prescribed psychotropic medication. Oh, and that's just like huge. And. And then when you start asking, okay, what type of, um, you know, medical supervision is going on? You know, what type of, you know, what type of medical um, review or, or what type of, um, you know, uh, medical screening is happening? And then they shrug their shoulders and it's, well, not much. And, and again, this is all about rather than having, you know, well-run functioning uh, prisons, this is more about just, you know, drugging as many people as they can and just live and, and into a zombie level to make them easier to manage and control. Okay, we will leave it there on that cheerful note. We were joined by Paul Wright, the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Stay tuned to uh, Political Misfits. I still do that after all this time. Stay tuned to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, very odd story coming out of the New York Post about Madison Cawthorn. Oh, yes. Wait, um, should, we do, should we do the serious piece of news that we forgot about before we get oh, to the frivolous stuff? Yeah, yeah you're, you're right. We there, completely there is forgot actually we talked about piece. this morning, but yeah. we have talked about this story kind of all along. But yep. the final step uh, seems to have been taken, and the Honduran Supreme Court uh, right. decided that it's former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, can be extradited to the United States for a drug trafficking trial that is going to be in New York, since you just asked. Um, it's, it's not very frequently that you have uh, the former president of a country being no. brought in chains, and he will be brought in chains uh, to uh, MCC Manhattan or MCC Brooklyn to be held in, you know, the same place where Jeffrey Epstein may or may not have committed suicide. And then make your... Turnaround Tried. for Hernandez as well, who was, you know, oh, yeah. uh, he was a darling. Exactly. Very friendly. Of the State Department. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, this is a big deal. Drug trafficking. 
Well, there was also an article in uh, the New York Post about Madison Cawthorn, this 26-year-old Republican congressman from uh, North Carolina. Um, He has gotten himself into more hot water with the Republican leadership over the last couple of weeks than anybody. Well, that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. No. (laughs) It's a joke about hot tubs. (laughs) He he gave an interview to a, a podcast that was that was put, then posted on YouTube called the Warrior Poet Society podcast, enough, and, and the name of it just didn't surprise yes, me at yes, all because that's exactly the kind of podcast that he would give an interview to. And um, he was asked what, on the surface of things, looked like an innocuous question. It was whether the Netflix TV series House of Cards was anything like real life uh, for him in Congress. And he said, and here's the quote, the only thing that's not accurate in that show is that you could never get a piece of legislation about education passed that quickly. This is from season one. Then he explained, it says, the sexual perversion that goes on in Washington. I mean, being kind of a young guy in Washington where the average age is probably 60 or 70, you look at all these people. A lot of them that I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics. Then all of a sudden, you get invited. We're going to have a sexual get-together at one of our homes. You should come. What did you just ask me to come to, he asks. And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy with a bunch of 60 and 70-year-old men. And he says, um, he says, and then you watch them do a bump of Coke right in front of you. And it's like, this is wild. Well, usually they let him get away with stuff like this right. in the Republican well, if, caucus. If it's talking about women being vessels for God and that's, that's why you right. can't control your own body and the like. Yeah, they, they have no problem with any of that stuff. This they had a problem with. And apparently several members of the House Republican caucus went to Kevin McCarthy and said, this is unacceptable. We don't care what he says about women, these misogynistic uh, statements that he makes about women. Mm-hmm. They care about this. Mm-hmm. You know what is interesting to me? One, I was going to say off the bat, 100% believe the cocaine bit. Sketchy on the orgy. <laughs> I don't think he's being invited to I, orgies, I but come on. I, of course. Yeah, of You course. know, I worked for a congressman when I was, I was a young guy. I was in my, I guess, my late teens. And I worked at my congressman's office here on Capitol Hill. And he was a very corrupt old school conservative Democrat, pro-labor, pro-gun, pro-life kind of kind of guy. And um, one day my dad called me and said, hey, are you in some kind of trouble? And I said, no, why? And he said, the FBI was here looking for you. This was in Pennsylvania. I was in school here in Washington. They said you're late for the orgy. Well, the, the FBI came to see me in my dorm at college and they wanted to know if I ever saw the congressman snort Coke in the office. And I said, no. Have, have I ever seen the congressman sell Coke? What? And I said, no. Did I ever see the congressman trade Coke for stamps or stamps for Coke? And I said, no. Well, they ended up arresting him. And he spent, um, I think it was nine months in a federal prison. What? But he was part of this whole stamps for Coke scandal in the in the 80s with Bob Rhoda. I still remember his name, the postmaster of the house. And Dan Rostenkowski ended up getting dragged down with them. And they all went to prison. So, so this whole thing about Madison Cawthorn saying he, members of Congress were doing bumps of Coke in mm-hmm. front of him. 
I totally believe yeah. it. I mean, here's my question. And I think this is interesting because I don't think Madison Cawthorn is getting invited to uh, or- orgies, orgies no, for houses of you know, senior I don't mean members. To sound of harsh, but the guy's paralyzed from the waist down. So uh, what's he going to do at an there's orgy? There's ways to have sex. I don't think that's it. But it, it just, I don't believe it. I don't know. Maybe it's happening. But here's what I would think is, you know, they're trying to sell this idea. It's sort of a QAnon thing, right? It, it predates yes. QAnon in yes. the sense that, like, the Queen of England is a pedophile and all, right, all right. of this stuff, right? Yes, the cabal uh, and so in Washington. Perhaps I think what's happening is he's he's still trying to peddle this because this is a winning line for a, a wing of the Republican Party that is a pretty reliable voting base, it seems like right now. Yes. And so he's like, yeah. I just watched Lindsey Graham and some of his buddies grill Katanji Brown Jackson yes. about uh, supposedly defending pedophiles in an obvious sop to QAnon. And so I'll just keep it up. And the problem is it's one thing for them to sit up there and say that, you know, some you're defending these vague other people. Madison Cawthorn is making it is bringing it too close to home. Right. So you're allowed to do this sort of sexual perversion. Right. QAnon chum. Right. For the that's a for, good way to say it. That uh, wing of the party, but you can't imp- you can't involve us in it. I think that's what is getting him See, in trouble he, here. He went too far this time. Now is the time for other Republicans, mainstream Republicans, to stand up and say it's time to put up or shut up. If you've been invited to orgies and coke parties, you have to say who invited you. Well, actually. Why would you have to say who invited you because to an orgy? Because nobody invited him. An orgy. Because nobody Cocaine, invited sure. him. That's yeah, why. Yeah, he I'll made it sure. up. Yeah. He, I think you're right. He did this for, for QAnon. Yeah. And to appeal with, with a red meat issue to, to his very small base. Yeah. And uh, I think they should call him on it. Yeah. He went and of too course, far. if you are having sex parties, go for it. Have a great time. Just yeah. obviously don't yeah, invite Madison Cawthorn anymore. You can't, sure. you can't be trusted. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, that was fun today, John. Uh, I want to thank, obviously, thanks to our guests and the, the production team here. And uh, on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>